0: Hello and welcome to Elevate, I'm Randy Taylor. Thank you so much once again for joining us here today. Elevate is a show bringing you in-depth interviews with experts in the world of human potential and behavior. My hope is that you take what you learn and actually do something with it. Today's guest is the real deal. And when I learned his story, I just knew I had to have him on the show. He has experience, great experience in business growth and development, uh, organizational development, logistics management, and a whole lot more. His His efforts, however, in philanthropy are extraordinary, a tribute to what we're all capable of when we make the choice to take action. On his LinkedIn page, his life philosophy is summed up this way. We make a living by what we do, a life by what we give. It's a great pleasure to welcome Vince Vetro to the show today. Vince, thank you so much for taking the time to join us.
1: And Randy, it's uh, yeah, it's great to be with you on Elevate and uh, to have some time to hang out with you and uh, your listeners. Yeah,
0: I've really been looking forward to uh, th- to this interview with you since we met, and I found out a, a lot of your backstory. Uh, your work is a key strategist in the setup and implementation of over two 2000- thousand. Uh, micro businesses in Ecuador and Nicaragua. That's what I, you know, really wanted to find out today, but uh, I'm always fascinated at the beginning of interviews. I've been doing this for a very long time uh, and to find out what it is, you know, what was your backstory of what led to this?
1: Yeah. So Randy, I, I, I would probably have to start or begin, uh, with, uh, my parents, uh, story and, um, My father was an immigrant from Italy who ended up in Toronto, didn't speak the language. And my mother was from a tiny little town in Newfoundland and they met in Toronto. And and, uh, when they married, they were, uh, you know, uh, relatively poor. And so the answer, one of the answers to their financial challenges was to do daycare. And so uh, my mother brought in uh, two young girls uh, to look after them to make some money and on the very first day, uh, the mom uh, dropped these two little girls, they were twins, off at around eight o'clock in the morning and showed up 18 months later. And 18 uh, months
0: later, 18 they they dropped the children off and, and she didn't come back.
1: Never came back. <laughs> and So basically, my mom adopted these two girls, uh, a bit to my dad's chagrin, who's going, now we have two mouths to feed and the idea was to create some income. Uh, but after about four months, a neighbor just said to my mom, you 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 can't raise these kids as your own. You just can't do it. And so they put uh, my mom in touch with the Children's Aid Society, which basically began the story of um, them turning my parents, turning their home into a group home. And so
0: when I was born in 62, I was whoa, 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 we have to back up. I do, I'm sitting here going, OK, two little girls. What happened to them? And where, where was the mom? She came back eighteen months later.
1: Yes. Yeah, so the mom had ended up in jail in the U.S.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: And um, and then um, yeah, around that eighteen month mark, a, the social worker had said to my mom, "Hey, the mom's back on the scene," and, I, and my mom's going, "I'm not giving up the two little girls." <laughs> I mean,
0: it was like right out of a movie. That, that, um, so and uh, what yeah. did Children's Aid do? They they said, "Okay, well, I guess so." Did your parents adopt them?
1: No. So they had. I mean, it was it was a horrific experience for my mom. It truly was because she had to she had to give the two little girls back to a mom who had really uh, not a lot of interest in her children. Hi. Uh, so yeah, it was sad, but that started them on this journey of opening our home up as a group home. And I, Randy, I, I like this is. The truth, our house was a revolving door uh, for kids living on the streets in Toronto. Literally wow. a revolving door. There, there were mornings when I would wake up, and I'd be sitting at the table eating my puffed wheat, and I'd lift my head, and there'd be a kid sitting at the table I'd never seen before,
0: <laughs> just like that, just like that. And so, and how, how old were you when the when this you know when this group home thing started? I was born into it. My
1: parents had already. Um, I, I remember uh, my brother Clarence, and Clarence was an um, an indigenous, a Canadian Indigenous, a young boy who had come to live with us. And he was there. Clarence was there before I got. I was born. So there were kids living in the house uh, when I was born, and when I was when I left when I was eighteen um there were still three boys that were still there that my parents had adopted (laughs) so that that was yeah and randy i'm telling you i've got a sister named debbie she was east indian um jamie my brother jamie uh was african-american as i said clarence was indigenous i mean it was the united nations growing up it was literally the united nations um and so when you went to church on Sunday morning, man, you had every color of the rainbow
0: <laughs> in, our, and, in and our... I mean, that, our and that's a while color. ago, and that was not, you know, I mean, yep. having grown up in it, you know, you're probably going to school going, so what spare brothers and sisters do you have, right? Just thinking yeah. that that's, that's kind of normal. And then, you know, to have so many races living under one roof, um, you know, you and I are not in our 20s anymore. That was not really the norm, correct? It not even close. So
1: there was, um, yes. And so my, my dad basically had one rule um, that has stuck with me through life and really um, is the parallel into my work in South America was that um, as soon as somebody walks in the house, a, a, another child, they have the exact same rights as you have. So there is no pecking order in this process, everybody is treated with the same level of respect, whether they're blood
0: or whether they're not blood. Wow, what and, that's yeah. And that's when do you? How young were you when you started hearing your dad say that? Oh, I. You know what?
1: It just—I I don't remember a time when it didn't resonate in my ears about the equality uh, aspect. And so we grew up not seeing color. Right. Yeah. Like we literally didn't have to develop. We didn't have to develop that because we didn't know any different.
0: Uh, what was the you know, because especially today, Well, you know what? I mean, it, it's always been there when I was a kid. It, it went on. I you know, we were very poor and there were you know times where I actually had to wear my sister's clothes and she had bad taste. So <laughs> that, uh, that didn't go well at school. Right. So um, but I mean, what went on for you as a kid? you know, being tormented or teased or, you know, about all these, you know, brothers and sisters from all over the world. Did that go on? Was that an issue? Hey, Randy,
1: I, I grew up
0: with four other Italian
1: brothers. Not too many people wanted to mess with us. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> like,
0: good, yeah, yeah, it, good point. It, yeah, it,
1: it was uh, right. And and uh, to keep us off the streets, Uh, My dad did two things to keep us off the streets. He got us involved in music when we were puppies, and we all played sports. And so, yeah, we weren't, uh, yeah, yeah. We may not have been the biggest, but we we were. You were scrappy, and you were. were Yeah, yeah, we didn't. uh, There wasn't (laughs) a lot of messing with us.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I remember Jim Rowan saying years ago, you know, you, you worry about kids. And he said, kids won't do drugs if you give them something else to do. Right and right. and your dad got that. It's like keep these guys busy, keep them in sports, keep them in music, and uh, you know, does it happen? Does it does it make it every time? No, but you know, does it uh, really have an impact? Of course, yeah, it really uh, it really does. So so you're you're growing up in the United Nations in your own house. It, it sounds really interesting and fun. Uh, I, I'm sure that there were challenges that went along with it too.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean. The uh, the um, uh, the num the amount of heartache for my well all of us I I still remember when I was five uh, some a young boy coming in the house and my mom's first thing was to take them up and give them a bath because they probably hadn't had a bath in a month yeah and seeing these little boys bruised like just bruised all over and I'm like oh my gosh what has gone on or the number of young kids that came in drugged, right? Because um, the parent, the mother, which is generally the father taken off, didn't know how to control them. And so basically just drugged them. And um, the number of kids who came in, you know, who had no perception of depth. And uh, I had a brother named Tommy, he had to wear a helmet. So every morning when he got out of bed, uh, Tommy had to put his helmet on because he had no depth perception. So instead of walking down the stairs, he'd just walk off the top level. Jeez. Or if he was walking across the coffee table, he would just walk off the end of the coffee table. Like no depth perception. Wow! Uh, but you know what? My parents had their house burned down by kids who'd live with us. Uh, uh, like some pretty, like the, the stories of incredible heartache because of the challenge of the of the kids that lived with us, and so my parents often lamented that um, they never had a chance to raise their five children because the amount of emotional energy that was needed to invest in these uh, foster children was incredible. And so, uh, you know, I, kids- I've
0: always thought that it takes extraordinary people to, uh, you know, to 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 bring foster children in because, yeah, you're bringing in. You know, not only another child, not only another mouth to feed, not only another bed to make. You're also bringing in all the baggage of whatever went on in that child's life yeah. leading up to that. And then that permeates, you know, the, the the relationship and the foundation of that family. So to your folks, I mean, God love them, because that's, you know, that that takes on uh, an enormous burden. And if not for them, what would have happened to all these kids? Right. Right. right.
1: And, you know, I've. Um uh, when I've spoken about the lending journey um, at different functions, sometimes I'll get people to pull out a piece of paper. I'll say, okay, just draw a vertical line. And that is the line where you just will not bend anymore, right? You've, made, you've put a line in the sand and you said, okay, I will not move that line. Um, in my parents' life, they had removed that line and said, whatever it's gonna take to help these people out, yeah. I'm prepared to do. And um, I often ask people, think about what that line is. Look, look, think about it, think about that line, because one of the things with our work in Latin America, and only because of uh, how I was brought up, um, we've removed that line. So Randy, I can't even, and only my wife could tell you, the number of phone calls, one, two, three o'clock in the morning, from somebody in South America, Vince, you know, so-and-so borrowed money for us. Her husband beat her up, uh, found out she got a loan. He stole the money when she got it, uh, put her in a hospital. What are we gonna do? How are we gonna help her out? Like Jeez. the the stories, right? And so, yeah, it was nothing for me to get on the phone, 11, the phone, the ring at 11, 12 o'clock at night and trying to help out, or there was a coup in Ecuador. Right. And our director is hiding in a building um, because she doesn't know what to do. She can't go out in the streets because of the gunfire. Um, 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 Just very recently, uh, one of our uh, one of our staff um, basically, I I would say, escaped from Nicaragua and uh, he just had to get out and uh, spent 78 days in a detention center. Right. Calling me, you know, every day, Vince, I can't, like, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of here? I have no money. And thankfully they just let him out in the U S but how many times the phone would ring. Right. And, and this young man just saying, like, I I, I don't know if I can handle another day um, in detention. So, so really we, when we, you know, especially about giving back um, you know, um, considering the cost, um, you really have to look at that line in the sand and say, okay, if I'm not going to flex that line, if I'm not going to move that line, even a few inches, um, how will that impact how long I stay at it?
0: Right. Right. And it's, you know, it's so interesting. And listening to you uh, and, and I know you do a lot of work in coaching and, you know, team development and executive workshops and uh, and all the rest of it. It's, you know, talking about this and, and the behavior that is connected to this line. It's, it's a fascinating, you know, philosophy of talking about this line that I, I, I find that so many times I talk about it as the box that, you know, that people will put themselves in based on the experiences they've had in life, you know, the the beliefs they had that have now been turned into doubts and they can say, well, I could go here, but I can't go there and I could become this and I can't become that. And it's, you know, I mean, your your parents' example of breaking that line and then for you, and we'll get into talking in in detail about your work in Central America and around the world, that if we're not understanding that there is flexion in that line, right? uh, Then we end up becoming trapped psychologically uh you know behind this line or in this box and look at the limitations it puts on life
1: oh yeah 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 absolutely i had a and just to kind of give context a, a little bit more to what you're saying i got a facebook message from a young man who is a pygmy on the island of papo Irian Jaya. Five hours off the coast of Indonesia, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So this is about maybe four or five years ago. I get this Facebook message: "Hey Vince, I just want you to know that I've become a pilot. And if it wasn't for you, it would never become a lie. pilot. Yes. Now, wow. I'm tramping through the middle of the jungle. I'm talking. I'm talking jungle, jungle, like." Like, like, no roads, no nothing. And all I'm doing is trying to stay in the line because I don't want to get eaten by snakes or anything else that's in the jungle and uh, on this island. And this young kid could maybe have been seven, eight years old, keeps, right? In the jungle, I don't know how he found. I don't know where he came from because I didn't see any villages. And he's grabbing on my pants. and He's going, Mister, Mister, I speak English. Mister, Mister, I speak English. Right And after wow. a while, I'm thinking because often, right, you hear people they've learned three or four words. But this little kid, he was actually uh,
0: speaking English. Yeah,
1: speaking English. So I said to the leader of this group I was with, I said, Hey, listen, there's a kid. I've never seen a kid in the jungle who speaks English. I said, We're we're amongst stone age people who don't wear clothes and and anyways so i said to the leader hey we should like let's bring the kid along with us let's find out who his parents are and and so i had worked on the in this on this island for about five years off and on and just we started developing a relationship with uh, this young boy and then um i found somebody who would pay for him to go to school because he was obviously bright i mean how do you get the how in the middle of the jungle of indonesia did Among you learn
0: English? Yeah.
1: age people that you find a kid who can speak <laughs> English. Anyways, uh, um, I used to call him Yogi. Um, but anyways, uh, his name was Yoshi. So, But anyways, so um, the um, so just over time, over those five years, I mean, he started to get older. I started to get him know him better, better, better each time I had gone. And we'd have people help him. Get to school, but right here's five years later, and I don't know how long I hadn't talked to him—at least ten years—and he shows me
0: a picture in his pilot's uniform. And so where did he where did he go to get his pilot's license?
1: In a place in in a place on that island called Santani, on the island of uh, of Papua. Um, now, my point in this story is some of the I had. Uh, got bitten by a poisonous spider on one of my trips into the jungle and my right my right leg had blown up so huge and it was like a piece of steel. It had so hard become so hard because of the poison uh, from the bite. Um, so there was a price to pay um, to be in that jungle and I'm talking about moving that line. but had I not been willing, to go into the jungle where it was incredibly dangerous where I had to sign a release that they weren't responsible if I died. And, yep. and that was all, the snake bite. I was in a plane crash in the jungle. My Cessna caravan it was an eight-seater Cessna caravan crashed in the jungle. That was on a <laughs> on a different trip. But yep. the number of mm-hmm. stories that I the number of stories that I have of working with people and helping people is incredible because I was willing to move the line. Now, is there a price to pay for moving the line? Yes. But the stories and the journey far outweigh the price of moving the line. But uh, Randy, as you're well aware, and you use the box idea, there are so many people not willing to move out of the box or move the line.
0: You know, so let me ask you this question. Do you think that they're unwilling or they feel incapable? I think that's a very different distinction. Wow. Um probably
1: incapable. Um a combination of that and just and and just uh, a certain amount of fear of the unknown.
0: I mean, I'm sitting here right now thinking, okay, so for, you know, all the men that are here listening and the adventurous and thinking I'd love to go to a, I mean, I'm sitting here being kind of envious of some of these journeys you've been on. But, you know, let's face it, you almost died from a snake bite. You were in a plane crash. There's probably a thousand other stories. And you have to walk out the door and kiss your wife and say, bye, honey, I'm off to work. And she has to be okay with that. I mean, that's really bending the line, too, right? And asking somebody else to bend their line.
1: Absolutely. And there was every time i got on an airplane randy there was a piece of paper sitting on my desk with um the things that had to be done if i
0: didn't come back yeah uh because i don't work i don't work in places in the world where it's safe well and that's you know that's very different my wife doesn't love to fly and i tease her all the time and say you know she's getting on a flight and she hates turbulence and she's very afraid and i say You know, when we land, there's not going to be a group of a welcoming party applauding for you. Right. This is Air Canada. We're going to Florida. (laughs) We're not taking a big risk here. But, you know, in the middle of the jungles of nowhere in Indonesia, um, that's, you know, that's that's a a horse of a different color. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah. And so the um, I mean, to some degree, if we're open to it, you can live out your calling if you're willing to step outside the box. Yep. Right. But, right. There has to be a willingness, a desire uh, to step outside the box, embrace the risk, um, um, believe that there's something more.
0: I that- have about uh, my, my best friend. Uh, I interviewed him here on the show a while ago, and he has an incredible story, he has gone through so much and just, terrible agonizing tragedy lost his oldest son a couple years ago and um he, like me he grew up on the streets and it just just a, a crazy life and went on to perform it you know america's got talent around the world in italy and germany and america's got talent extreme and uh, and all these things that we were talking uh, on the interview uh, actually and i was talking about you know overcoming fear i mean this guy is shackled in chains, put in a mailbag with a lock on top, put in a wooden box, lifted in a crane, 160 feet in the air with 60 seconds to get out of it before he falls to his death. So he's, you know, he's that, uh, he, he's that guy, you know, and in, in talking about, you know, overcoming fear and adversity and everything else, he said, listen, I'm not telling you, you have to do, you know, stupid things like I do, but do not ever be so afraid to die that you don't live. Oh, boy, yay. And it's, you know, and I, that's, that's you, man. It, it, It truly is. I mean, that's, you know, the story of what you have, you know, you're, you're not Superman. You're a, you're a human being. You were in a plane crash. You probably scared the hell out of you for dozens of flights after that, you know, and going into countries and being, you know, being bitten by that spider. I mean, all those things the fear doesn't go away, but you have to, you have to overcome it. True.
1: I, yes. And, 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 you know, you and I've discussed this before. You have to have such clarity around your purpose. Yeah. To me, I think that's once you're prepared to step outside the box
0: or move the line, there really has to be clarity of purpose. I love the uh, the line from the great philosopher Steve Martin, the comedian, who one time said, "You gotta wanna, <laughs> yeah. right? If your wanna is big enough, then that provides the reasons to get in the plane, to get in the box, to take the chances, to to do all that." Listen, I, I right, want right. to get into talking about all your work in uh, in Central America and around the world. Uh, you know, these it, it's incredible these micro loans that you end up. Uh, helping people with it that, that change their lives. I want to back up a little bit and fill in, you know, that part of the story from you know growing up in your your parents' group home to going into business. Fill in in, in the gaps there as a young man. You ended up you know going hundred miles an hour as a as a businessman.
1: Yeah. So I, um, my uh, brother, uh, I was at University of Waterloo, and uh, my brother had just started playing football for the Montreal Alouettes. And he called me one day and he said, he goes, hey, Vinny, he goes, look, I can't run the business when I'm playing football. So um, figure out how you're going to finish your degree. And I'll I'll give you, a, you know, I'll say a 40% ownership in my company and um, you run it while uh, I'm off uh, playing football. And so um, we went on this incredible journey together, um, building this business, and then He left, Uh, he sold out about four years after that. And, um, but in the process we had bought, uh, it was, we had bought um, five franchises uh, between uh, Ontario and Alberta. We had about 200 staff. And- um, And how old were you at this time? About maybe 28. (laughs) And uh, yeah, at 31, so my brother left around, I think I was 29, 30. Um, at 31, we were ranked the number one franchise in North America. Um, wow. And so, we, so it was kind of funny because I remember being invited to the good old boys club uh, with all the number one guys who had been number one in the world. And, you know, I, had, I think I had just turned 30 and most of these guys were in their 50s. So <laughs> it was wow. quite incredible. And At 32, um, honestly, it, it, it wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, um, I, I, it just wasn't. I, and I remember people saying to me, like, you're 32, you got companies across the country, you have zero debt. You don't owe anybody a penny. Um, like, this is when, you know, your real life really begins. And I said, guys, man, it ain't worth the money. Like, this is not my destiny is not um, uh, to do this. And um, so they all said I was crazy, but I sold. Uh, I sold my companies. And I sold all of them, and, and um, you know, uh, retired at uh, 32. Um, but realized within a year that I I become accustomed to a lifestyle retirement <laughs> wasn't going to work at 32. And uh, yeah, I was going
0: to say at 32 years old, you gotta you gotta buy yourself a really sturdy rocking chair that's going to last uh, for the next yeah, 70 years, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So about yeah. a year later, I went back in the business, but. Um, it was within that time I had uh, I had come across a gentleman uh, who had written a book uh, called Halftime, and it was all about what are you going to do at the second half of your life. And I mean, I wasn't at that stage, but I'd lived a lot uh, up to that point. And he just said to you, like, at what point in your life does it stop becoming about earning income or this continual cycle of earn? Elevate, earn, elevate, earn, elevate, go up, go yeah. up. At some point, they stop that and start thinking about giving back. And so, I went, uh, and and this gentleman was a billionaire, so so he had. This was a gentleman that had done incredibly well, and um, I went to his school in Dallas uh, with a bunch of other business executives who have done really well, and wanted to instead of going back into a cycle of having done really well, um, sort of getting out of the game, getting back in to make more money, it was, okay, we're gonna get back in the game, but it's not gonna be any more about what you get. It's gonna be about what you give. And, and that was part of my journey into getting into the lending journey. And, um, you know, I knew how to build businesses. I understood about how to create opportunity and the lending journey was an opportunity to do the same but for thousands of other
0: underprivileged um women in latin america so let's let's rewind the tape to uh the beginning of the lending journey and how this came to i'm <clears throat> i i i am always you know fascinated by i have thoughts in the back of my head of you know talking about getting stories of all these amazing people Uh, And maybe there'll be a chapter in the book of you. Uh, And the the book is called When Opportunity Knocks, right? Because every one of us have this, you know, this moment in time uh, when, uh, you know, when opportunity knocks and whether or not we we answer the door. When I was in radio, this uh, really incredibly bright woman called my show one day, was doing a show and talking about health and nutrition. And. She sounded very bright, and in 20 years, I had never invited a, a listener to come on and be a guest. Uh, and and I did that day. I said, "Would you you sound like you really know what you're talking about?" She was a doctor, and I said, "Would you like to come on and uh, and and do a show?" And so she said yes. Um, and that day, when opportunity knocked, um, that guest became my wife and the mother of our kids. So, you know, it's it's incredible. My brother in law. <laughs> Went to Western University. Is a mathematical genius. Studied actuarial science. Graduated on the dean's list. Got a big job at a big insurance company. But uh, during his time in in university, he did a little broadcasting because he was a big sports fan. Didn't play sports, but uh, loved loved to follow sports and did some broadcasting. And two years into his job, um, sat down his fiance and uh, and his uh, uh, his parents, my in laws, and said. Guys, I, I'm going to quit my job. i got to try this radio thing. Um, and he scared the life out of them. And he did that and went on. Uh, and now Dan Schulman is considered one of the top broadcasters in the world. Yeah. So I, I'm just I'm so fascinated by that when opportunity knocks. So take me to the moment that, you know, a conversation, something happened that began this venture in your life that's changed thousands of lives that began and it was called the lending tree.
1: Right. So, the, so, so, um, in, um, 1998, um, the, uh, church I was attending, uh, had given, or uh, $25,000, uh, to a church in Ecuador, uh, to uh, build an addition. And so my pastor had said to me, Hey Vince, I want you to, um, would you do me a favor? Would you take a couple of people down with you and go check out the what's being done? How's the money being used? Is, is the new addition built on? And and I said, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you know, I've never traveled to South America, but uh, listen, if I can run a staff at 200, what really? What's it going to take? Yeah. You know, and I got off that airplane and within half an hour, I had seen poverty uh, Randy, like I can't even begin to explain to you the uh, going into this, going to uh, the host uh, took us to um, right into the downtown core to the bus station. And there were moms laying on the streets, nursing babies, little kids running around with no clo- like no shirts on and shorts. Little boys, you know, running these little shoe shine businesses. And they were wearing, you know, maybe a size three foot and a size eight shoe. I I, I mean I I was devastated. And then the the real kicker was uh, one night I'm laying in bed, I can't sleep because I can't I can't join the world I've come from to the world I just entered and the two realities didn't connect and I, i they had to connect in order, I'm a type A thinker, they had to connect. And so I'm laying there at two o'clock in the morning and the um, fan is just whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And I hear screaming outside the window of this little tiny uh, hotel I'm in. And I just sneak over to the window, I open the curtains to see where the screaming's coming from. And it was pouring rain on a, on a slant and it was coming down so hard you could barely see. And then across the street, there was a street light and there was a little, a little uh, store with an awning coming out. And there was a mom underneath the awning and she had three little children and they were screaming, crying because she was trying to keep cardboard on them to protect them from the rain. Um, but the wind was so hard that it blew the cardboard off. And I was devastated. I was devastated because there was nothing I could do. I didn't speak the language. I couldn't go down and help them out. And so I made a commitment there. I said, God, if you open a door, I'll commit the rest of my life to serving the poor wherever wherever you direct me. And that really was the beginning of the lending journey. And this year's 25 years, uh, 25 years later, uh, we're still um, doing work. And so, and so then that led, I met a lawyer, I, I met a lawyer and his wife, and just, I just said, hey, there's gotta be something we can do. And I said, I don't dig wells, I don't build schools, I'm a businessman, that's what I do. I know how to build businesses. So how can I use this to to start helping people? And uh, that became the seed of thought. And then slowly we just started talking about giving out small loans. And um, literally those first few loans were out of my pocket. In fact, for the first three or four years, uh, most of the loans came from my uh, my company um, to uh, to help people out so it was good too Randy because we made a lot of mistakes in the early days yeah. and I wasn't using other people's money to make the mistakes it, it was my own so by the time we started uh, accepting donations had become an NGO uh, we had made enough an, enough early mistakes that we could... Be sure we weren't erring with other people's
0: money. So was was it your you know kind of notion philosophy in the beginning that you know listen we can you know I, I could give somebody you know twenty five dollars and I can help them eat for a month uh, as opposed to you know that that saying you know you know give a man a fish he eats for a day teach a man to fish he you know he he eats for life was was that kind of the the impetus for this this idea. Exactly,
1: exactly. And um, uh, part of that, Randy, was um, I had worked really hard. I mean, my brother gave me an opportunity to go in the business, but he didn't make it easy. I mean, every dividend check I got, um, I had to sign the back of that check and give it back to him until I paid off that 40%. And when I went to buy the other 60% off him, I had to mortgage my house. I mean, I had to beg, borrow yeah. every penny I got. But the dignity, the dignity that that gave me, I would never rob anybody of that opportunity. And so we every time we gave out a loan, there was an interest rate attached to the loan. Did, did we really care about the interest? No but we wanted to ensure that anytime we created an opportunity for somebody to get ahead um, at the end of it, they were going to be able to say, Hey, you may have helped me, but I paid you back that loan plus interest. And yes, the idea of teaching people to fish got them out of the cycle of poverty. And we give money. I mean, when there's hurricanes, when there's disasters, we're always giving money away. In that way, we yeah. will donate. But the reality is, in order to break the, pover- the that cycle of a poverty and help people thinking, well, you owe me, the only way to break that cycle was to say, no, 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 no. I'll give you an opportunity, but you're going to work for it.
0: And it's it's something that I've talked about uh, a lot in my work and at conferences and talking about that, psychological prison that people end up in and that's exactly what you're talking about i talk about um examples of people that uh, are living in the projects you know whether you go drive through atlanta or niagara falls new york or you know parts of detroit wherever where you see people who are second third fourth generation welfare families who are who are just stuck there they're living terrible lives they're not happy there's there's nothing fun about living there but the psychological jail that says you belong here, not realizing that, you know, as you drive your car eight blocks away, you're out of the projects and there's yep. a McDonald's and there's a bookstore and yep. and there's opportunity. So is that what's, you know, really, in essence, being able to help people with these loans to start their own companies? That's the that's the secret sauce. I would say, yes, there's a I teach I teach every Tuesday
1: night. Uh, I teach a mini MBA program um, and the first book that we study in this program is Amanda Lang's, uh, the beauty of discomfort. Yeah. Because you have to be comfortable with discomfort in order to excel. Right. And so, yeah, the reality is you got to pay. Yeah. I get you. I to you got to pay me the loan back. Absolutely. And there's an interest. Okay. So, um, so, so, there is a value that comes out of the discomfort in in our situation with the loan. The beauty is the dignity that somebody gets after they paid the loan plus interest. Now the social part of it Randy comes in and this is where a good part of my you know coming from my mother and watching her with these kids is absolutely you give a man a fish you feed him for a day you teach them the fish, you feed them for a lifetime. But in most of our material for the lending journey, you'll see an added line, but it's not until you sit down and eat the fish with them that you gain entry into their lives. Right. And if you wanna be transformative, you have to create the time to sit and listen to their story. Because that's where the transformation happens while you're sitting and listening Uh, and listening to them and so there's there's the beauty of discomfort absolutely and i you know this course i teach on tuesdays but any of those guys i teach know and my rule of thumb is six days a week i work you can get hold of me six days a week i if i don't get back to within an hour get back to you within the end of the day the only day i'm not available is sunday um so even though i'm pushing them pushing pushing they still know that I'll sit with them to discuss whatever it is
0: six days a week. So, um, so, so yeah. it's it's a little bit of money and a lot of psychology and a lot of connection and effort. So, give us some give us some examples of you know some of the 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 you know the women that you've given micro loans. And when you say micro loans, you're talking about not very much money, um, but what kind of an impact? That it had on them. What did they do with the money? And then, you know, eventually, what did that transcend into? Okay, so Randy, you said that uh, so much of it is psychology. So we
1: had a we had uh, a, um, a psychologist in Guayaquil, Ecuador. We went to for help because here's one of the things, and you're gonna love this. Here's one of the things we found. We would talk to women about the opportunity to get a loan. You have a dream about a business you want to start. We would go through all that before we ever gave them the loan, right? And then the application process and all that. Randy, when we would hand them the check or the money, the fear in their eyes was incredible, right? And we started to notice this over and over and over again because the minute it moved from being a dream to a reality, the reality of what they were in for got the best of them because they had no self-worth. Right. I'm, I'm poor, I'm not worthy, I live in a mud hut, uh, I, love an, I live in a cardboard home, whatever the case is. And so we ended up, this psychologist ended up helping us out to teach the women, you are worthy because you're worthy. So I just, I, I'd say that just as a sort of a precursor but I'll tell you a couple of stories. So, um, there is uh, there was a young girl named Yesenia. Um Again, her story is is incredibly similar to so many other young women in Latin America. Um, parents are making seventy five cents a day, so between the mom and the dad, they're making a buck fifty a day, and they're gone six days a week. They're working till all hours. And all these young girls are all out in the streets playing. And they're all pregnant by 14, 15. And that was Jacenia's story. Um, She ended up marrying an older man who had got her pregnant. He beat her. Um, And when we finally met her in her early 20s, she was hooked up with a gang and was a prostitute and somebody in the village she lived in said hey there's an organization called the lending journey and they'll give you money to start a small business and she said yeah but i don't own anything what am i like uh, what collateral do i have and they yeah. said oh you don't know this organization you don't have to have collateral they'll give you money and they just said no you got it no no there's there's no such thing life doesn't work that way and they said look just talk to the director of the charity in nicaragua her name's uh, elliot and uh just talk to her. And so we uh, Elliot met with her. They spent as much time talking about getting out of prostitution and out of addiction um, and changing your life around as they did the business opportunity. And so Jessenia's first loan was for about $150. She's what she would do, she would get up in the early hours of the morning, take a bus into Managua, buy a bunch of frozen pork, get back on the bus go back to her village. Then she had this cart and she would wheel the cart around town and um, uh, sell this pork. Right. So she paid that loan off and then took out a second loan. And this is uh, like just a lot of people's ingenuity. She built this rack around the top of the cart to sell pork and started hanging used clothing. (laughs) So while she's wheeling around town, she's selling used pork. And clothing. Well, the used clothing was a lot better deal than the pork, and so the house that she was living in, she turned it into a store and started selling used clothing. And um, um, the and and, um, and she's in a, a movie that was done about the lending journey. Um, That is on uh, CBC uh, television. But um, she, uh, I mean, it would be wonderful to say that it was this beautiful story. But, you know, you have all those years of heartache, uh, drug addiction, sexual abuse. Um, But I, and, and so she had been estranged from her family. And I remember maybe seven, eight years later. Um, I had an opportunity to connect with her. And she said, Vince, I live next door to my dad. And her dad was uh, basically one of the perpetrators of the sexual abuse. And she said, Vince, I came to terms with it. I met with my dad. We reestablished a relationship. And she said, Now I live next door. Randy, when we met this girl, I mean, you had never seen anybody so low it just it was terrible it was just it was just terrible and to run into her seven years later and just see the glow on her face and leaving this terrible life of abuse like we don't have the time this morning but the terrible story of uh of abuse and and some of these stories as well randy i i i mailed you a copy of uh this book called Sisyphus Rides and there are many stories of many of these women but the
0: uh, is in uh, in that book um that uh, that that name by the way um also became a documentary wasn't it so yeah so there's a the documentary is called Sisyphus Rides yeah and um, uh
1: it is uh it is on uh it's on CBC television uh, on uh, their documentary st- station so if anybody has CBC, uh, the documentary, they just got to go look up uh, Sisyphus Rides or type in my name and the movie will be there, they can watch it. They can also watch it on Vimeo um, as yeah. well. We have a Vimeo link. Um, but uh, there was another, uh, another it gets you another story. There was um, one of the very, very first loans we ever did was to a couple named Tomasa and Silvadio. And Tommaso ran a small pharmacy, and her husband, um, Silvadio, was a teacher and uh, taught guitar on the side. And um, boy, I remember when we met them to talk about giving them a loan. I mean, if this guy, the way he looked at me was like, man, buddy, I'd as soon just kill you, than sit here and have to talk to you. He, this was an angry, angry, angry man. What I learned was they were paying 100 percent interest on a loan to a loan shark now randy, 100%. Then, yeah randy and when people think that slavery doesn't exist anymore i'll tell you how it does you take a loan because you're desperate right so 180 90 10% interest now you die your family inherits the loan but Jeez. the loan just keeps double triple quadruple because you can never get out of debt because it's 90 percent interest, and it's just modern day slavery. It, it just is a reality. So um, they took the, so the loan that we gave them. They paid the loan shark off, and they went from you know a hundred percent interest rate down to ten percent. Um, well, over time, um, and in the book, there's a picture of uh, Silvadio playing his guitar. And whenever we were gonna, whenever we went into his town, it was a town called called Prosperina, and we were in we meeting with new women to start another group. He was always there with his guitar playing <laughs> and talking the praises of the lending journey.
0: Oh my we gosh, went that's to incredible! Guy
1: who was so so angry and just he wanted to kill us to just becoming you know this uh, in this incredible story, but. The greatest of all of them, and I've told this story I, I, I hundreds of times, I've how many times I've spoken at events. Uh, there was a young woman named Monica, and uh, Monica, same story, her husband had left her, four children, uh, living in just terrible conditions, no way to feed the kids. And like most, a lot of women turned to prostitution, because what are you going to do? And a social worker introduced us to Monica. And just said, hey, guys, listen, this woman, she's suicidal. She's getting ready to kill herself. And we're worried she's going to kill her four kids as well. That's how desperate she was. And we gave her a $50 loan. I'm staring at the picture right now. We gave her a $50 loan, and she bought a blender and some fruit drink, some fruit, and started making fruit drinks out of her house. And, and again, just context, everybody told us, You give this woman a loan, you'll never see the money. Never. You guys are crazy if you lend this woman money. And um, she paid back the loan. We gave her a $100 loan. After that, she paid that back. And then she bought uh, some um, barbecue equipment and a couple more blenders. I'm staring at the number of blenders she had. She paid that loan back. We gave her a larger loan. She converted her house into a restaurant. We gave her another loan. She paid that, gave her another loan. Now this thing is chairs, tables, right? And I'm staring at a picture here. So you went from a woman in prostitution, ready to kill herself. And I'm staring at a picture right now, Randy, with her, with her employees, women who are now working for her in her restaurant. Incredible. And so we're having lunch one day at her restaurant and the social worker happened to be there with us because we're having a celebration. And the social worker said, Vince, you just, because you're not here enough. You come and you go, you come and you go. But she said, Vince, you have no idea. Like five years ago, this woman was suicidal. She wouldn't have smiled if her life depended on it. Look at her. She's running around the restaurant, greeting all the patrons, right? Joking with people. She said, you just have no idea, Vince, what you did in that woman's
0: um, life. And uh, so... You know when when I when I hear this and I'm you know it's a, you're you're a great storyteller and one of the you know the great s- skills of being able to share a story is that when you're telling it the person sees the movie and so I'm watching the movie and you know I I'm seeing her and I'm seeing you there and standing back and having that you know that comparative of a woman about to take her life to you know a woman proud and happy and joking and staff and a restaurant and. Uh, all that for people who, you know, and it's this is, you know, such an involved process for you of, you know, you are all in on something like this. But the reason I wanted to have you on, um, you know, really was to be able to share your stories and then share your philosophy of people listening to say, so when you reach out and, and you decide to to give back. What, what what do you get from it like how does it how does it impact how does it impact your life well and, and okay, I can only
1: answer that in a short story. I'm in this tiny little village Randy in the middle of Nora in Nicaragua, and I'm talking to the women uh, about self worth and i'm I'm you know um uh, using a, a, a biblical story. Um, to explain that you're not invisible, you're seen. And this woman, her name is Jahida, quiet, quiet woman. I'd never said a word. And and all the time I'd worked in this one village, and I'd seen her a number of times. And she says, Vince, 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 please stop talking. I'm shocked because this woman never talks. And she said, Vince, I have to tell you about what you're talking about. She goes, I want to start by saying, you see me. And she said, I was in a store uh, dropping off uh, some of my goods to this store. And she said, I'd already been working three or four hours, you know, and a man came out of the store while I was setting some things up. um, And he looked at me like I was worth nothing. And she said, Vince, um, you see me. Man, Randy, I just started bawling. Like, I I like, right? I mean, here's this woman who, and the backstory to her, she had been sold as a slave. So this is a girl God. out of slavery. And she said, Vince, you saw me. No, I didn't know when I'm telling that story there. I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to help people understand their worth, right? And you have this woman who's you've seen so many times who's never opened her mouth, right? And she's crying, and you're crying. And how how can my how can you not be changed forever by that experience? Um, and so I, the the number of times women have come and said, "Hey." like oh like you just have no idea what you did like you 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 like you just have no idea and i mean not just me it's our whole it's our whole team so boy i've just received and i know it's a cliche that you receive more than you give but it's 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 just the truth um, now Randy I, uh, the only preface I'll say is last night I'm out here it's 8 o'clock at night I just worked a long day and I'm on the I'm uh, in a meeting with my staff in Nicaragua okay how many bad loans do we have this week how far off are they paying who's paying who's not paying what new loans do we have how many weeks out is this person how are you out collecting the money Like, <laughs> like there's, yeah. so there is
0: this is not a Disney movie no, no
1: there, the because and what made me think about it is something you said early the amount of work involved in being a bank a micro bank is incredible um, so I it isn't a Disney movie but what I get back Ginia's story Monica's story man those things you can't like, you can't buy that and it is a it is a movie it is a book. And you're right in the middle of the book, right? I mean, it's it, you know, um, yeah.
0: You you can't buy
1: that. You just you you can't.
0: To wrap this up, one of uh, one thing that's kind of striking me about this to bring this back full circle, here's a little five year old boy, and he's growing up in a group home, and uh, you know, and his dad sits you down and your brothers and and says, "Look, every person that comes into this house." Uh, everyone is an equal. Uh, no one is better than anyone. And from that, you know, very simple, basic philosophy, it developed a character in you that went on to define your life, that went on to, you know, help the lives of so many people in areas of the world, you know, there. But for the grace of God, go all of us, truth. And I, I'm looking at this and thinking, with all the struggles in the world right now, political and economic and, you know, gang violence and drugs and it just, you know, so many things going on, I would just pray that everyone from this interview takes that lesson and says, we can be better people. We can be better leaders in our communities. We can be better parents, you know, in our our families. We can be better CEOs of corporations. When we start to see everyone, it just, I mean, I'm overwhelmed. I have to tell you, I'm overwhelmed to think that that philosophy, when embraced by more and more people, it really changes everything. You know, because the CEO of the corporation and the stationary engineer, you know, cleaning the bathrooms, they both have jobs and that's what your dad was saying and yeah. that's what your life's work has embodied yeah isn't that isn't that just yeah. so true that that would just that one simple philosophy could change yeah. so much
1: yeah no i i would agree and i i would say that the self discipline of understanding to him who has been given much, or to her who has been given much, much is expected, right? Because we do, we, we just live in such a blessed country, right, like in and, and, and such a blessed society. And so, you know, developing that discipline of, of belief that to, who, to him who has been given much, much is expected. And so, and, and much is expected isn't about giving money, much is expected about giving your time.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's become, you know, a great misnomer that, uh, and and I, to the detriment of people who are struggling, I, I think that I've always believed that it's the, you know, the the function uh, of charitable giving itself helps to entrap people in that psychological prison forever. You know, right. it's like, a, here's your food stamps, here's your welfare check, here's your, right. you know, we, we know that, you know, your, you know, you're, you're over there. You're these people. And so we'll give you enough money to exist rather than saying what you're saying. And what I always believe to say, no, no, no. Listen, Vince, I know you're ha- you're going through a tough stretch right now. Listen, we're going to help you out for the next four to six months. going to get you some clothes, going to get you some food, going to buy you some books. But then, sir, we expect you to take off and soar and go on and have an amazing life. Just, you know, it's still helping people, but not this... You know, the, not this imprisonment psychologically that says, oh, well, you're in the projects and so that's where you belong.
1: Right. Well, it's like you said, yeah. eight blocks away. I, I love that. I, I still love that line. Eight blocks away, there's opportunity. There's a different, there's a and different. Three
0: generations later, they've never made the trip for those eight blocks.
1: Yeah. Eight Crazy, blocks. right? Right. But, yeah. how, right. And so the question is, how, how do we invest our time to help people walk eight blocks away, and the reality is, you're not. If you've got three generations having lived that way, it isn't going to happen super fast for that person you invest in. You just got to walk with them. You got to be patient. And a Take check,
0: a, a check certainly isn't going to do the trick, right?
1: No, a check, right, no. check's not going to no. do the trick. You got to sit, you got to sit and eat the fish when they've caught it, and hear the story.
0: This has been uh, this has been absolutely fascinating. I'm going to uh, I'm going to ask you in front of all our viewers and everything if you'll do this again. Uh, I'd love to have you come back on and talk about uh, you know coaching human potential. You know what what is really possible when people move that line. You know I love that analogy that we all live behind that line. Could I get you to come back on the show and do another one? Would love to, Randy. Awesome. All right. And we'll uh, we'll post the uh, information about uh, uh, about the lending journey, about everything about you. People can check you out. And uh, this is this has just been uh, just the best. I was really looking forward to this interview and you did not disappoint. So uh, I appreciate your time very much. Thank you.
1: I'm very glad it's been it's been incredible. Thank you as well, Randy.
0: All right, sir. Well, he certainly did not disappoint what, uh, what an amazing guest uh, Vince Vetro will post all his information here about the lending journey here on the page and all of his contact information and, uh, you know, backstory and, uh, and the rest of it. Fascinating. Just, just amazing. So thanks to everyone for, uh, for joining us once again here today for uh, everyone here at Elevates. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Have an amazing day and be well.